Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Sarah Benjamin Huang, who is a content producer, food host and director of Ethnographica. Born and bred in Singapore, Sarah grew up in a British, Chinese, Peranakan family and in the following conversation, we chat about how her mixed heritage translates into the food that she cooks and how she has managed to negotiate her Singaporean identity over the years. Hi! Oh my gosh, I've been wanting to talk to you for the longest time, so I'm very <laughs> you know, to, to chat with you. And actually when I was typing up some of the guiding questions to ask you, I was like, oh my god, there's so much to unpack and to talk about. Mm-hmm. I guess let's start from the beginning, like how did your love for food begin? I think I read on your Instagram that you were very influenced by your grand aunt and yeah. By- your helper as well? Yeah, I think my family loves food, definitely. And I grew up in one of those houses that had a lot of people in it. So I grew up with my parents, my grandmother, my grand aunt, who was my grandmother's younger sister, and my helper. So it was like a very crowded house. There were a lot of different um, kind of flavors going on, different languages, different cultures, all mixed into one. And I think for me, food was always a nice way to figure out exactly who I am. I know it kind of sounds very, mm, can food really do that? But I don't know, growing up mixed in Singapore, sometimes you struggle to figure out where you fit in, you know, because in Singapore we're told, oh, there are four races, Chinese, Malay, Indian, others. So (laughs) you're like, oh, I'm an other. What does that mean, you know? And I think food is, is a really easy and also delicious way to kind of understand all the different cultures that contribute to who you are. So for me, I think that was the big appeal, definitely. Yeah. And also my parents, um, they're the opposite of anxious parents. They're like, do what you want. You want to cook, you want to cut with a knife, you want to turn on an open flame, do it. So I was never stopped from trying anything. Oh my gosh, that is so different from my childhood where my mom was super territorial in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, I but think maybe because my mom doesn't really cook, to mom, be honest. Yeah, I think I read something that you said in an interview that there was something like your mom is not, you know, she doesn't fit the stereotypical idea of like an Asian mom who is like always in the kitchen. No, not at all. Honestly, the only thing I remember her making me when I was a kid is French toast. That's it. like literally nothing else so yeah so it was just an interest that um was it expectedly or unexpectedly became a career uh i think unexpectedly um i so i kind of cooked from a young age my parents my parents are both academics so their answer to anything is let's buy books so i had a lot of cookbooks even as a kid you know those kids cookbooks where they're like learn about different cultures through food. So on weekends, my dad and I, we would try and kind of make things from those cookbooks. And I would force my family to try all the food that I cooked, weird experiments and stuff. And then I went to university, I studied sociology and politics. So extremely not food related. But at the same time, I think for me, like I said, food is is really culture. Food is culture and sociology is about studying culture. So it kind of all meshed together. At the same time, I, for the first time in my life, was without good Asian food, you know. Before that, 
I could just go out and eat basically chicken rice, anything I want to eat. But then I studied in Scotland. Man, it was <laughs> it was kind of a desert of Asian flavors. So for the first time, I had to learn how to cook Chinese food, which is not something I thought I had to do. And yeah, after a few years, I started a food blog. And then, yeah, when I came back to Singapore, I ended up working in F&B. Mm. But on the restaurant side, um, not in the kitchen, but in marketing, actually. Mm. Oh, so interesting. I didn't know that about you, to be honest. <laughs> um, so, you know, you talked about your mixed heritage. So how did you really come to grips with, um, you know, reconciling parts of your identity with being Singaporean? And also, how do you think that manifested in your food and your cooking? Mm, yeah, this is something I get asked a lot is what cuisine do you cook? Mm. And it's very difficult to answer because I think growing up in Singapore, I don't know if other mixed people have this experience, but you kind of almost feel like you don't quite fit the box that has been designated for you. And I think in Singapore, I don't know if it's because we're such a young country, um, people have this idea that Singaporean food has to be authentic. You know, I'm sure you've heard this before. Hey, it's not authentic. It's cooked a different way. How can we eat that? You know, this laksa is not authentic. But actually, what, what is authentic? You know what I mean? Singapore's history is around half a century, right? Mm -hmm. Some of these dishes, like laksa, it is a fusion dish. It comes from, you know, Malay culture, Chinese culture, Indian culture, all interacting. So, I mean, if, if back then someone was like, oh, this is not authentic, we would never have laksa. We would never have chili crab. Mm -hmm. So how come we've decided that now is the time that we have to stop uh, evolving. This is the time when Singapore cuisine has been, you know, set in stone. This is what makes up Singapore cuisine. So for me, I think I really am not into cooking authentic food. I don't really get hung up on what technique or what flavor comes from what culture. I think it's all about mixing it up, but in a respectful way, you know, you need to understand where it comes from in order to play around with it. So if, when people ask me what cuisine I cook, I kind of say it's just inauthentic cuisine. That's the <laughs> word I like to use. Yeah, I know. I mean, this conversation of authenticity comes up a lot, you know, in my work through Singapore noodles. And sometimes it can get annoying. But at the same time, you know, I feel that the balance between uh, respectfulness and, um, you know, not gatekeeping, I think there's, you know, it's so tricky to navigate because on one hand, um, I would want to, for example, through my work at Singapore Noodles, I would want to present a holistic image of Singaporean food. But at the same time, you know, gatekeeping is the death of Singaporean food, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, it's very, very, it's a very, very fine line. And, you know, with all these conversations and discussions on cultural appropriation, you know, it becomes so murky. You know, recently I was speaking to someone in Delsford and she's Eurasian. And I asked her, you know, why is it that your family moved to, to Australia? Or, you know, why is it that a lot of people from the Eurasian community have moved abroad? And she told me basically the same thing that you did, you know, which is that it's so hard to belong. You know, in, uh, in Singapore, she often felt that she wasn't Asian enough. I 100% understand um, what that person was feeling because honestly, growing up, everyone called me Angmo, which, you know, is like, I guess, not a very polite term for a white person, basically. And that was just all the time throughout my entire like childhood and adolescence. And I think 
it was very hard for me because I, I actually grew up in a house where we spoke Mandarin at home. I spoke Mandarin to my grandmother and my Ipo, who is oh my, my grand aunt. Your Mandarin is so good. Yeah, I mean, my grandmother was born in China. She was very strict about, you know, as I, my grandchild, you must speak very fluent Chinese. So that was the thing. And then everyone on the outside was telling me, oh, you're Angmo, you're Angmo. So I was like, fine, I'm Angmo. I will leave this place. And I had the exact same feeling as that person that, since I'm not wanted here, I'm going to leave. And I actually never intended to move back to Singapore. And I, I never felt, I feel very Singaporean, but I don't feel, I never felt that other people felt that I was Singaporean mm. enough for them somehow, because I think, you know, we understand Singaporeanness as you are Chinese Singaporean, you're Malay Singaporean, you're Indian Singaporean, but what if you are none of those things, you don't fit neatly into either of those categories then? Are you Singaporean? That's, people don't quite understand that. So yeah, I, I had the same feeling. I went to the UK. I thought I would stay there forever. But what happened instead was that going to the UK made me feel more Singaporean than ever. And then eventually I just decided to uh, be where my family and friends were. And that's why I ended up coming back. It's still, I think things have changed since I was a kid for sure. I think people are more aware that Singaporeans come in different, you know, colors and forms. but. I think it, it's still hard, honestly. And every every person I've dated, when they date me, you know, and they, they're with me on a daily basis, they're like, wow, you really get asked every single day what your story is. And it's true. Every day I have to explain my life story. My father is this, my mother is this, my grandmother is this, you know. And I don't mind sharing it. It's just that there's always this tone of, mm, are you really Singaporean? Are you really from here? Yeah. That I yeah, that's I think I've learned at this age to just let it go, but it definitely bothered me when I was younger. Yeah, do you think that is a hurdle in your career where you know I, I know that you have been the host of Asian Food Network and you have done a lot of these kind of videos. Do you think um, you know, people would question whether or not what you're presenting is credible? I I definitely have that fear. But I actually have come to realize over the last few years that it's more me than mm -hmm. other people. I think, I think because of when I grew up, you know, people tell me you're not Chinese because your father is not Chinese. So in my mind, I'm like, can I cook Chinese food? Is it okay for me to say that I know how to cook Chinese food? I'm not. I, I think I'm pretty good at cooking Chinese food. But the thing is, I wonder how it looks. But I realized that actually a lot of people, you know, as long as you share your story, I think people can open their minds. That's what I've realized. Mm. So, you know, you talked about being good at Chinese cooking. So what kind of Chinese cooking do you feel the most familiar with? Ooh. Um, basically, recently, in the last few years, I've really dived into um, Hakka food because my grandmother, who was born in China, she was Hakka. And um, Hakka, I mean, if people don't know, it's like a dialect group. Um, of Chinese and the Hakka women are known for being very fierce. Basically, they have a reputation for that. And um, yeah, so they have very high standards. And I think for me, it was interesting to uh, get in touch with that side of, uh, you know, my family. Because Chinese culture can be quite patriarchal. So my grandfather was Hokkien. So somehow the family culture just became Hokkien. But I actually never knew my grandfather. He died before I, I was born. But my grandmother is this huge looming presence in my life. And yet, you know, I didn't know much about Hakka culture at all. 
Mm. So in the last few years, um, I decided to try cooking it. And yeah, I actually think it's a very underrated cuisine. Mm. So can you tell me about some seasoning agents that people use in Hakka cooking? So one very kind of standout one is fish sauce. Mm. Um, actually, Hakka's, they tend to be inland communities. So Hakka basically means guest people. And the creation myth of the Hakka community is that they are actually northern Chinese who, due to war and upheaval, uh, had to, you know, force themselves to migrate southwards and settle in places that were already um, settled by Cantonese and Hokkien and Teochew. So they never had their own province. There's no Guangdong, which mm. is Cantonese, no Fujian, which is Hokkien. They live in those provinces as guests, kind of. So they tend to not be along the coast. They tend to be inland. They don't have much access to fresh seafood. So they use a lot of dried seafood, like dried shrimp, dried squid, preserved things like fish sauce. So I think there's a lot of that kind of umami flavor that runs through the entire cuisine. Yeah, I actually love that because I learned how to make hakka sonpansu, which is a bakasu, oh, wow. right, from my grandmother-in-law. And even though she's Teochew, but I think she picked up all these kind of different uh, cuisines and food along the way because in the past, in the kampong, people share recipes all the time. And when mm -hmm. I saw her reaching for fish sauce instead of soy sauce at that point, I think it really blew my mind because up to that point, I had only seen uh, fish sauce as a Thai ingredient, not necessarily as a Singaporean or Chinese ingredient. Yeah, and I think um, for a lot of the Chinese food that we eat in restaurants, they tend not to use fish sauce that much because I think it has quite a funky taste. Mm. And you know, in, in that sort of level of refined Chinese cuisine, they want things to taste very fresh, very light. Once you add fish sauce, it has that kind of like funky, fishy yeah. flavor, which I love. But I think, you know, it's people see it as not as refined. Mm, agreed. So can you tell me about the menu that you did with uh, Restaurant Ibit? I saw that on social media. It looked amazing. Can you tell me about the process of creating that menu? Yeah, so um, I, Wai Leong, who is the chef owner at Restaurant Ibit, he's a friend. So um, for me, actually, I mean, I've been cooking, I've been creating food content for many years now, and I do like private dinners a little bit, but I never felt comfortable kind of in a restaurant kitchen. So, but you know, this year I was like, I'm going to do whatever challenges that I want to put myself to. So I um, approached Wailong, I said, hey, would you be open to maybe doing a collaboration um, based on this modern Hakka menu that I've been working on? Because, you know, Ibid, they do kind of modern Chinese cuisine, I thought it would work together really well. And I, I was like, oh, can I maybe have like one night or like two nights? He was like, let's do a whole week. I was like, huh, okay, sure. So yeah, it was it was really cool because he didn't know much about Hakka food. I think this was actually his first exposure to Hakka food. Um, so I basically had these ideas that I had already been working on based on dishes that I had tasted at various relatives' houses. Um, how I think that they could be played around with. And I told the, told Wailiao, and then, you know, he being obviously a restaurant professional, he had some ideas of how we could refine it further. So it was really, really collaborative. Um, some of the ideas were just us having coffee and like going crazy. And one of those is the uh, reverse, we call it like reverse yong tau fu, haka yong tau fu, basically. So haka yong tau fu is, um, 
tofu or other ingredients stuffed with a meat and fish paste. But instead of that, we put the meat on the outside. We made like a kind of like a Japanese tsukune um, meatball. And then we filled it with sunkwe filling. Because sunkwe is another haka stuffed dish. And then the tofu element we put into the broth, which was a soy milk, soybean, and ikambilis broth. So it was very deconstructed, but kind of you still get those flavors. Yeah, oh my god, that sounds amazing. So what other dishes inspired the menu apart from Hakka Yung Tofu? The whole idea started with the Hakka Abaca seeds, which you mentioned just now. Um, that is a dish that I have eaten every year at Chinese New Year since, I mean, as long as I can remember. And it's one of my favorite things in the world. It's also one of those things that I only kind of really picked up the mantle of cooking recently. Um, so my grand-aunt, my Ipo, who was actually blind, but blind from a young age, she could cook really well. So she was actually in charge of all the Hakka menu at Chinese New Year since I was a kid. So she and my Tete, who is my helper, and me, we would kind of all sit around the kitchen table rolling out these yam balls, the abacus. Um, but as everyone got older and, you know, my helper left, so I decided to try cooking it myself. And I've been doing it the last few years, so I'm pretty happy with my version, and that's how everything started. So the traditional one is cooked with minced pork and dried squid, dried uh, shrimp, black fungus, shiitake mushrooms, and then you have the chewy yam dumplings. So we kind of uh, refined it, I would say. We added some fresh squid instead, and it worked really well. Some char-grilled fresh, fresh squid, some sakura ebi, which is like, I guess, a fancier version of dried squid pickled black fungus and then we did because for me you have to have that herby taste we put in a lot of chinese celery usually but instead at the modern haka pop-up we did um uh basil gremolata for that herby flavor so yeah it, it's familiar but it's not you know so do you think um this could be one of the ways to preserve Singaporean food, which is to, you know, inject a modern spin into traditional dishes. I, I think so. I mean, for me, when I was there for the week at Restaurant Ibit, I tried my best to tell the stories to every table about the dishes, where they come from, so that people can understand the history of it. Because I think in isolation, a modern take on something, it doesn't really mean anything to you if you don't know what it is paying tribute to you know so i think i think it's two-pronged i think to preserve the flavors and that kind of the essence of singaporean food yes i think it can evolve it can become modern but i think also people need to know more about the history of it mm. i think everyone's are very passionate about food what tastes good but i don't know that we are that informed on the history of certain dishes or techniques or ingredients and i think on the whole if that kind of education exists then people will feel a lot more secure with uh, new takes on modern versions of dishes yeah you know i find it very interesting that you're talking about the history and um you know the research that goes behind understanding the dishes as a whole you know and i'm very curious about your current career which is someone who produces videos and you know from my own personal experience doing that i find that 
you know, nowadays people are bombarded with so much media and their attention spans are so short. And, you know, sometimes I feel that videos or like YouTube content isn't like the best way to really inform people because people just want to be entertained, right? So what do you think are good ways for us to share about the history or, you know, the full context of a dish? I think that that's very true. I also struggle with that in my work you know, like striking the balance between fast and easy and entertaining content, but stuff that's meaningful as well, because I really don't want to do meaningless stuff, <laughs> you know? So I think that's something I am still honestly figuring out, that balance. But I think there is an appetite for people to learn more. I think people want to actually dive deep into topics, whether that's through reading or even online courses, honestly. I think that's like a really like kind of like this growing market because over the pandemic people were just finding themselves with so much time and I think people also started to question like what is the meaning of my life what am I doing you know and I think that people kind of naturally gravitate towards learning when that happens so yeah I, I do think that there's kind of this appetite for learning more but I haven't quite figured out how to balance that with stuff that is also fun because mm. i think fun is very important yes exactly it's about the packaging of you know heavy content as well right how do you make it accessible and exciting and hip and cool to the younger generation mm. especially um do you think your fascination with the history side of things came from your parents work as anthropologists oh definitely i i think um you know growing up in my house i'm an only child so uh it's kind of like when you're an only child, you don't really do kid things. You just do what your parents want to do. Mm. You know, there's no one to go to the playground with or order from the kids menu with. You just basically do what your parents do. So, um, yeah, they used to like talk about all this stuff. I used to follow them on their field work trips to Indonesia and to Malaysia, you know, like sleeping in the village houses, sleeping on the floor, eating the food of the people there. And I think kind of being exposed to that at a young age obviously i went through my typical rebellious teenage years where i was like i don't want to be anything like my parents you know i'm going to be a banker or whatever i don't know what i was saying but eventually you know i was like actually this is really interesting and and i care a lot about it you know so it's fun because it's just stuff that we chat about at home and it's like I am very lucky because having my parents is like having two human encyclopedias at home. So anytime I want to ask something, I just ask them. Yeah, I think your, your parents clearly care a lot about local food culture and you being such a young person who is in your own way championing our culture. What do you think are you know, the benefits of youth to you in the preservation of our food culture? Mm, I think that preserving a food culture has a lot to do right now with like technology. So I think being plugged in to social media and new ways of dispersing information is a real benefit. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that I think there's this kind of gap that maybe needs to be bridged because I think a lot of people with the knowledge of the food, the older generation, they know so much, they have all these stories, they have all these recipes, but somehow it's not getting out there because they don't have that connection with social media, with technology. 
But then the younger generation, they don't have the knowledge. The problem is, do they have the interest? Mm. I think that's the that's something that I kind of wish. I don't know. It's a complicated issue because Singaporeans are foodies. There's no doubt about it, right? Singaporeans love food. We love to talk about food, but whether we like to really understand food and where it comes from and the stories behind it versus oh does it taste good you know i think i think that's something that's still waiting to happen in singapore you know I, and i think the reason is because not a lot of people cook mm. because being a pure consumer of food versus cooking at home it, it really changes your relationship with food um so can you tell me a little bit about your role in ethnographica i mean it seems like polar opposites from what you do, um, you know, producing food content, you know, being a researcher. So uh, what, what exactly do you do? Um, yeah, so a couple of years ago, I gave this career talk at a school in Singapore. And when I was asked to do it, I was like, oh, no, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Because when people ask me what I do, I, I stress out. I don't know how to, like, how do I put into words everything that I do? And, and is it really a career? Sometimes I was, I'm thinking like, can I really advise young kids on, on all this? But what I've realized is that actually all the things that I've done have kind of led me to what I do now. So, you know, I, I study sociology. I have a real interest in um, research and understanding cultural heritage, you know, cultural forces. But then I found myself doing this kind of like TV thing. And then I realized actually now what I do, especially with Ethnographica, which is a company I started with my parents. It's a family business. Um, we do cultural heritage research. So obviously, you know, my parents are academics. They have that know-how. But the great thing is that through all my years in working in media, I've learned a lot about production. So I actually produce and direct the documentaries that we make. So we're now able to kind of do this research plus documentary service, which I think is pretty, pretty niche, to be honest. Wow, I didn't know that. Like, where can the public view your documentaries? Um, so what we've been doing over the last few years is we've been working with the National Heritage Board to research intangible cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. And we've been producing these um, research reports, but also these kind of mini documentaries, just three minutes to five minutes. And they're all on the roots.sg website, which oh. is um, HB's ICH kind of stronghold. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And now with UNESCO, you know, with hawker culture being recognized, do you feel that, you know, it's a turning point in hawker history? I hope so. It's a really, you know, I feel like there are a lot of things going on with hawker culture. On one hand, heritage wise we are paying a lot of attention to it we want this to be our kind of like a representative of singaporean culture you know but also the reality of being a hawker especially in this pandemic is not romantic it's not you know a lovely story to tell it is really hard they're having a really hard time right now and you know that's like there are so many things going on with that that i think it's hard I think for us, like what we do, we're researching the history and the heritage of hawker culture. But a lot of people ask us questions about hawkers now, you know, and the truth is we're not experts on that because our project is very much backward looking. Mm. So I think, I think there is, it's important. What we're doing is important. Yes. But I think it's also really important that we pay attention to what's ahead for hawkers in Singapore because 
it it's really difficult right now and it would be such a shame to say that this is our heritage and yet we don't know what it's going to be like in five to ten years you know Mm. You know, something that came to my mind as you were talking was, um, you know how, you know, in our span of history of being in Singapore, I mean, I feel that our national dishes have all been ones from like decades ago, like there are no new national dishes like chicken rice or nasi lemak and things like that. Why do you think that's the case? It's like I said, I don't know when we decided that this is Singapore cuisine and it will never change. They obviously happen at some point. And <laughs> I mean, you know, all these dishes we're talking about, laksa, chili crab itself is not that old, you know. In fact, the lady who invented it is still alive. Mm. It's, it's, you know, it's actually a current dish. So when did we decide that this is what constitutes Singapore food and it shall never ever change? Yeah. I think that's a very interesting question mm. because I think about this a lot. Look at how popular mala is in Singapore. Yes. You know, so how long will it take for mala to be considered Singaporean? I think I think the obsession with mala is pretty Singaporean, honestly. Like when I go to China, yes, those flavors exist, but it's not a genre of food. Mala is not a genre of food in China. Do you know what I mean? They have Sichuan food, they have Hubei food. I mean, a lot of these flavors exist, or like Dongbei food, yeah. but. Nobody says like, I'm going to eat mala. But in Singapore, we say that. I want to eat mala. <laughs> what is that, you know? That's so Singaporean. But I, I feel like there's this kind of, I don't know, like when when do we start uh, accepting that new dishes can be added to this canon of Singapore cuisine? Yeah, you know, exactly. And that's something that's interesting. Yeah, so from your perspective, what exactly makes Singaporean food Singaporean? And what makes the Singaporean identity Singaporean? Mm. Okay, so I think for me, when I think about Singaporean food, what makes Singaporean food Singaporean, I naturally compare it to Malaysia because that's our closest neighbour. We have the most similar food culture. Um, I think that a lot of the dishes that we prize as Singaporean food, for Chinese Singaporean food especially, um, come from Teochew and Hainanese cuisine, which are two cuisines that you don't find a lot of in Malaysia. So actually, I do think that a lot of what we've defined as Singapore food is basically what's different from Malaysia. Do you know what I mean? So our Hokkien mee is different. Um, our bachor mee does not really exist in Malaysia. Um, Hainanese curry rice totally does not exist in Malaysia. Uh, not to ruffle any feathers, but I would say ch chicken rice is pretty Singaporean, honestly, <laughs> you know? chili crab, that kind of thing. So so I think it's really interesting what we've chosen to say is ours. Nasi lemak is Singaporean too, but you don't really hear people saying like, Nasi lemak is Singaporean, because yeah, Nasi lemak is Malaysian, mm. you know? Yeah, true. I mean, there's so much overlap that it's pretty annoying when people start being nationalistic about things, about dishes. Yeah. I think it's, honestly, I think it's crazy when people start fighting about this kind of stuff because we literally only split in 1965. You know what I mean? My mom was already 14 years old at the time. It's not like, you know, my mom has outlived a separate Singapore and Malaysia. So these dishes, they're obviously a shared history. And I think sometimes we get a bit lost in, you know, we, we say things like, oh, this is Malaysian, this is Singaporean, whatever. But the truth is, even in Malaysia, food is not uniform. The food in Kedah and the food in Johor are very different because it's a big country, you yeah. know? So I think it's more about local culture versus national culture. Sometimes I do think that. Yeah. And I think for you, you know, 
going back to what you said, like at the very start of this episode was um, about how you didn't feel like you were accepted as a Singaporean. Do you feel like you tried to accentuate certain parts of your identity to make yourself seem more Singaporean? Oh, very, very much so. So, you know, people are always surprised that I speak fluent Mandarin. Yeah. Um, because obviously a lot of Singaporean kids don't enjoy studying Mandarin. Most of my friends speak terrible Mandarin, to be honest, because I went to a school that's notorious for having bad Mandarin. So, um, you know, but for me, I think the more people doubt me, the more I want to prove myself. Mm-hmm. I, I made it my mission to speak good Chinese. Yeah. You know, and I, I speak Hokkien as well, not not well, but enough, you know. And uh yeah, I think I'm I think I do have this side of me that I feel like, oh I'm I'm very Singaporean, you know, like that and I, I kind of let it out to prove myself. But it's annoying that I have to do that to be honest. Yeah. Actually I feel that in Singapore our history is so I don't know, it's almost as if we want to forget part of our history of our history and there's this huge tension between westernization as well as appreciating like grassroots like common man working class kind of culture i think the privilege of growing up mixed which makes it sometimes quite hard to explain to people who did not grow up mixed is that you can have multiple identities existing at the same time mm-hmm. and this is something i really appreciate my parents kind of bringing me up in this way is that they always told me I am not half British. I'm not half Chinese because people like to know, you know, people, people, when I was growing up, people were very obsessed with like breaking me down into fractions like, oh, so you are one quarter this and you are one, you know what I mean? And I always said to my parents like, oh, so I'm half this, I'm one quarter this. And my dad always said, you are not one quarter, you're not half. You are just British, you are Chinese, you are Jewish, you are Hokkien, you are Hakka, you're Peranakan, and you are all those things. Yeah. At the same time. And I I actually, it took me quite a while to understand that. But once I understood it, I said, I realized what it was. Because one identity does not diminish another. I, I do feel British too. You know, I there are parts of British culture I identify very strongly with. I still have family there. You know, I lived there for five years. And I can feel that way. And I can also feel like a Hokkien girl, you know. I can also, at the same time, like swear in Hokkien, I can at the same time speak a bit of Malay, eat Peranakan food. And none of these things diminishes the other. Yeah. And do you think of all of these identities, the identity that makes people the most uncomfortable is your British one? Yeah, it's it's interesting, especially with my dad. My dad came to Singapore, well, Malaya, in 1964. So even before Singapore was his own country. Um, but you know he still i guess he still sounds british and and all that and people have this idea like oh your father is an expat i'm like is my father an expat he came to he came here when he was 24 and he's been here ever since like i kind of feel like he's basically he's like singaporean but he's british you know Mm. and and i think i think that people maybe I think this is changing, but I think people do tend to really look on the surface and it really does come down a lot to what you look like. Hmm. Because I get told all the time, I don't look mixed. And I think that's a, that is actually what people have an issue with because I have a lot of mixed friends who I guess maybe don't look as white as me. I mean, hmm. I don't know what that means to be honest, but they, they don't get questioned as much as I do. 
So it really does come down to like how you look. And I think that's so silly. I really feel for Eurasians. I mean, I don't really necessarily identify as Eurasian because to me, I guess to me, Eurasian culture. Okay, this is complicated. Every time I've interacted with Eurasians, they're like, yeah, you can be Eurasian because we have British Eurasian. They, they call me a first generation Eurasian. That's what that's what I was told by the Eurasian Association. Um, which I, I do see and I appreciate that a lot. It makes me feel welcome. But at the same time, I have this idea of what constitutes Eurasian culture, right? So I don't feel that I can necessarily claim that. And um, for me, I feel like basically I'm a kind of like a Chinese Singaporean who doesn't look like Chinese Singaporean. I don't feel Eurasian. But for the Eurasians, they've been in Singapore so many generations. And that is their culture. Their culture is Eurasian and they're Singaporean. And I don't know why there's so little awareness of them and their mm -hmm. culture. Yeah. And I find that really puzzling, to be honest, because I, I thought when we were kids, we were told like there's Chinese, there's Malay, there's Indians and there are Eurasians. But it seems that like everyone has forgotten that there are Eurasians. I'm not really sure why that's happened. Yeah, exactly. I find it really sad, you know. I, I think it's because of the mass migrations to other countries. And also, mm. you know, there's not enough documentation. When I try to look up, you know, Eurasian cooking or Eurasian dishes in Singapore, there are so there is so little information, so few blogs, so few books. Yep. And um, yeah, you know, it's such a beautiful cuisine that is very, very distinctive. You know, they have their own curries, but you know, they use things like mustard powder, like vinegar that other cuisines don't, you know. So I'm just thinking maybe, you know, someday it would be nice for them to have a resurgence in, in that kind of promotion and interest yeah. in that culture. Just like how Peranakan cuisine has really seen this whole new wave, right? Of, yeah. Of this. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say that maybe what Eurasian culture needs is a Channel 8 drama because, you know, when we were doing our heritage research, Actually, a lot of the Peranaka respondents in all areas, food, fashion, you know, handicrafts, they said a lot of the researchers came after that Channel 8 drama, The Little Nyonya. Mm. And that was actually <laughs> very responsible for this resurgence in Peranakan culture. And it's hard to remember a time before that, that actually Peranakan culture was very overlooked. Peranakan food was very difficult to find in Singapore outside of homes. People didn't know what Baba Malay was. People didn't know about kabaya or beaded slippers. But now it's like, oh, this is Singaporean. But it actually came because of this channel in drama. So, you know, it's crazy how much pop culture can affect, uh, I guess, like traditional culture. Yeah. So given that you have so many different identities that you call your own, how do you make sense of, of you know, the, the food that defines you? Or, you know, when people kind of want to know what food tells your story? What do you say? It's about finding the similarities for me. So, you know, I'm Jewish as well. Um, and, you know, like matzah ball soup is this famous soup, chicken soup from Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. But then my Singaporean identity, we have Hainanese chicken rice that comes with the soup. So for me, sometimes I'm like, hey, why don't I try taking the lemongrass, the pandan, the ginger, the garlic, and then infusing that into matzah ball soup? And I just try these things. They may not always work, but for me, that kind of cooking is basically who I am, you know. Mm. Or it could be like blending red bean with the technique of making a babka, which is like a Jewish baked good. Mm. That kind of thing. So I guess, yes, the, the word is fusion, but I don't know. I haven't really settled on a way to like properly describe yeah. what I do. But it's all about, I think, um, you know, one of my inspirations is David Chang. 
mm. who's the founder of Momofuku. He's a chef. And the way that I think he and his team look at food, that is really inspiring because instead of saying that this is Italian food and that's Chinese food and this is why they're different, they actually look at the similarities. So, for example, you know, um, like one of the examples is that there's garum in Italy, which is like a fermented uh, meat or fish liquid. And fish garum is essentially fish sauce. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, actually, these are very similar kind of ingredients. And it can come down to like different, um, replacing different ingredients in different dishes. But it's also about finding the same technique. So fermentation occurs throughout the world. But maybe we can use one fermented product instead of another to give you that same like familiar effect, but with a different dimension. So I think when you think about food that way, it gets really fun yeah. and you can kind of innovate forever and ever, which is the real attraction for me. Hmm. And you know, now with uh, the world getting more globalized and cultures becoming more and more mixed, do you feel that the world is becoming more homogenous and is that a bad or a good thing? I mm, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think on the plus side, you know, all that technology, th the way we are closer virtually has allowed us to explore things that we wouldn't have been able to before. So, you know, I can look up um, like a recipe from Colombia. I've never been to Latin America, but I can look up uh, look up that dish and find 10 to 20 versions of it. And that's something I wouldn't have been able to do 40 years ago, right? So we are so much more exposed to other cultures. But at the same time, I think especially in food, uh, I mean, I'm guilty of this too. I also publish recipes that are like easy one pot pasta, right? This was what people want to cook. But then in the end, I think everyone just ends up thinking that home cooking is making, you know, pasta or baked chicken or steak. Do you know what I mean? And I, I think that the proliferation of those recipes, you know, which are essentially American, I think it's causing a lot of people to overlook their own techniques in their own culture, you know? That's such a great point. I have one last question for you. And you don't have to feel compelled to give me a PC answer, okay? Or to okay. end this podcast on a good note. And that is, do you feel like Singapore feels like home to you now? Yeah, it does. And I think it, it came down to me making my own peace with it. You know, I, I still get questioned a lot, but I think it's it's my own security and my identity. I know I'm Singaporean. I know I'm very Singaporean in many ways, and it doesn't matter if other people don't see it as much. And I think that was a big change for me, but mostly also it's, it comes down to the people who are here. The people that I love are mostly here in Singapore. And I realize like that's really what makes it feel like home, you know? And I, I do obviously feel this urge to explore new places and, and go elsewhere, maybe live elsewhere for a little bit. But in the end, I think every time I'm in Singapore and every time I come back, I mean, I haven't traveled in a while, but every time I come back after a trip, I really feel like, oh, I, I am home. I love the fact that I can go out and eat chicken rice at any time. I love the fact that I can speak Singlish. I love speaking Singlish, you know, like it's, it just feels that this is where, you know, 
I'm from. Mm. Oh my god, I love that. And I loved having you on the podcast. I feel like this was such a great conversation. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Zulila. It was really fun. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Sarah Benjamin Huang, a content producer, food host, and director of Ethnographica. Once again, thank you all for listening to the podcast, and I'll catch you all next week.